Welcome to the Boys in Blue podcast, the podcast that's all about cops. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. You have tuned in, undoubtedly, to the most informational law enforcement podcast out there today because we'll talk to real cops, some active, some retired, and we'll get the inside story on law enforcement. So here we are in Mesa, Arizona, and here we go, another exciting episode of the Boys in Blue podcast. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds, and we've been all over the map on our podcast lately. We've had guests from LAPD, Scottsdale, Arizona. We were up uh, Tacoma, Seattle area, and they're in Washington State. So we've been kind of a national podcast. Hopefully soon we'll be an international podcast. I'm, I hope to have an Israeli police officer on the podcast as a guest pretty soon. So that'll be interesting. But today we're kind of hanging around here uh, down in Mesa, Arizona, the Boys in Blue podcast studio. And we have as our guest today, Sergeant Nate Gabbert of the Mesa Police Department. We want to welcome him to the Boys in Blue podcast. Nate, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, so glad to have you on. And uh, just as a little background on us now, of course, a lot of people know that my wife retired from Mesa Police Department as a civilian employee, and she was event coordinator, and uh, you were a big part of the Mesa Police Officers Association, the, the union there. And so you always, uh, the MPA, as it's called, would always be involved in the events that she was at. So I got to know you that way. And we talked some over the years. But now I think this is interesting. We go camping in the same area, which we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm we, we camp way out in this area. It's up. Past Flagstaff, Arizona, and you have to drive down this dirt road for like 23 miles. It's way out there. You don't even hardly get cell phone coverage. I don't think you can in some spots. So anyway, we're camping, and I take my mountain bike, and they've got some old forest service roads, and I'm I'm out there, and I'm all alone. It's so beautiful because you can see, you know, you run across elk and deer and stuff. But I look over there, and over in the side of one of these old service roads, there's a camp set up, and there's a guy, and I think. I think I'll just pull in and talk to him. So I pulled in, and by golly, there's Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew we'd meet 23 miles out in an old dirt road in the middle of nowhere? But there we were. Yeah. Right. Yeah, small world. Uh, you were just rolling by, and uh, yeah, it, it cracks me up. And it's funny, after we, you and I got done talking there, um, uh, you left, and uh, I looked behind my camp, and within 100 yards of my camp was a black bear just, just walking around. You know, that's amazing. We've seen a bear once up there, and that's why we're always armed. I mean, hopefully, you know, they'll run away, but I, yeah. <laughs> I always, they're pretty curious, though. They, yeah. they, that one was super close to camp. Yeah, it, it, it must have known that uh, that the hunting season was over for it because it was <laughs> it was cool. I just I sat there and watched it for about 10, 15 minutes. Uh, well, you know, and I didn't see it, so. He could have been stalking me for all I know. I don't know. but <laughs> He probably was. Yeah, he just figured you're in too good a shape to chase down, I think. 
Well, that's a beautiful area out there. And what really bums us out is uh, the place we used to camp at was closed this year. So we didn't get to go up there because of the coronavirus and all that sort of thing. But Nate, yeah. you, uh, are you a native of Arizona? I am. Yeah, I grew up here in Mesa. Okay. All right. Yeah. What high school did you go to here? I went to Westwood High School. Oh, you're right. Right uptown there. Yeah. yeah. So now Westwood Warrior. Tell me now, you've been, you're a sergeant now, and what is your current assignment now, Nate? So I'm currently assigned to the Fiesta Patrol Division Street Crimes Unit, which is, uh, I'm the sergeant over that unit. Um, I was there as a detective for five years in that same unit before I promoted. And basically, we we do just about everything. We work uh, high enforcement, uh, uh, drug information, um, stolen property, violent crime, um, and then we do apprehensions for, um, you know, every, anybody that needs our assistance, patrol, um, any, any of the shirt and tie detective units, sex crimes, we'll, we're just basically a utility squad. So now, are you in uniform or are you plain clothes? How does that work? We're in plain clothes mostly, uh, but we wear our outer vest carry. We're not, we're not technically, you know, undercover in the sense that we, you know, every, we have to hide our, our identity. We're, you know, pretty clearly identified. We have uh, undercover vehicles that have uh, red, blue lights. So we're, it's very obvious who we are when we make contact, but we do try and stay, uh, you know, under the radar when we're doing surveillance and, and apprehension stuff. I see. Now, how many guys are you supervising now? I have five detectives and one pro, uh, Maricopa County pro, adult probation officer assigned to my team. Oh, detectives. So all your guys are detectives, huh? Yep. Well, be darn. Huh. Uh, yeah, I thought perhaps you would have some super squad, you know, uh, patrol guys in there or something like that. Well, so you call them also. You call them patrol if you need them for an incident. Yeah, we, you know, we're assigned to the patrol division. So we're, we're basically a, a tool for patrol. We help patrol regularly, almost you know, once a day, a couple times a week when patrol needs assistance, if they've got, you know, kind of major incidents, stolen vehicles, they, you know, anything that they might need, like a surprise arrest on where my team can covertly get in and, uh, and get close to somebody and, you know, minimize the, the threat for the officers and, and also minimize, you know, uh, any force that would have to be used and minimize any injuries be, um, from the suspect to ourselves. If we can surprise and overwhelm someone, typically that, you know, persuades them to give up without any force being used or it changes their mind where a lot of times, you know, a patrol officer, they're in a marked car. So they see the bad guy and the bad guy sees them almost simultaneously. And the officers are a lot of times, you know, either by themselves or they have one partner and we can, I can roll in there with, you know, six, seven people and, and we can surprise and over, overwhelm our bad guy. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Nate, let me ask you, Okay, so you grew up in Mesa. What attracted you to law enforcement? When did you decide, golly, I'd like to be a police officer? Well, <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in the 80s and uh, 80s and early 90s of, you know, cop movies were, were really big, cop shows, cop movies. Um, you know, I think that caught really a lot of people's eyes growing up is the, the cool cop shows and, uh, you know, the heroes on the shows that would, 
kind of do whatever they, whatever they could to help somebody that, that couldn't be helped and, you know, doing the right thing, regardless, you know, if it's popular or not. And then, you know, I just, I, I felt the real draw, um, to it from, you know, being able to, to help people that either aren't, a, aren't willing or able to speak up for themselves, uh, or, you know, defend themselves, you know, the, uh, getting physically mad when you, when I would read the, the newspaper or see the news of, you know, some, you know, uh, elderly person getting robbed and, you know, dragged through the parking lot when their purse got stolen or, uh, you know, just, just violent crimes like that, that would just make you upset and feeling like I, I just had to, I had to participate in something that, you know, that could counter that and, you know, keep our, our amazing and, and free society, a law abiding society, society. Well, you know, that is a common thread uh, about the guests on my show, the cops that have been around for a while, is the injustice just, just they just couldn't stand still and watch it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Always, you know. Just yeah, and it's our, and... It, yeah, it's our, it's part of our wiring. You know, we, it's not, you know, there's not a, a shortage of fear. It's just, you know, you're, it's, it's pretty, I don't know. It's pretty elementary. Like it's, it's so basic. And I think, you know, the answer is always the same and it's not the textbook answer because it's the re it's the real answer. Um, it just happens to be the same answer that, that most police officers, the overwhelming majority of police officers get into this job for and it's to, to really help people and, and rid their community of, of the predators that either prey on people or their property. Absolutely. In fact, uh, and I think you agree with me, it's that mindset that makes law enforcement not a career, but more of a calling. I mean, yes, it really is. You know, it's uh, and it's one of those things. I don't know about you, Nate, but I talk to so many guys. It's just like I can't believe they're paying me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah. It comes so natural, and it's it's enjoyable, and it's exciting. And so now, tell me now, you got you got started with the PD, not maybe as an officer, but at a pretty young age. Tell me how that went. Yeah. So my mom worked for the city of Mesa and she, uh, you know, knew my parents clearly were very supportive and, and knew I wanted to, to be a police officer. And so, you know, back then we didn't have social media. Um, and so everything was, you know, by word of mouth or, uh, you know, on paper forms that were attached all, you know, to departments over the city and they were hiring uh, entry-level positions, which was a police service assistant. Um, I was 19 years old uh, when I got hired in April of 1999. I was almost 20 years old. And um, so I did that gig for a little over a year um, before I went to the police academy in May of 2000. But during the time as a PSA, I would, you know, I worked in supply for a little bit. So I would, you know, get batteries out and just you know, rubber gloves and random stuff that, uh, was kept in supply. Then I moved over to, uh, the criminal investigations division. And, and that was really cool for, you know, a young kid. I, um, I was responsible for taking the felony custody reports, uh, to the different, uh, uh, justice courts where back then, um, depending on where you arrested somebody in the justice court, that paperwork went to that specific JP. So I would drive around, do that, and then also make sure cars got, you know, the, when they were due for service uh, or when they need maintenance, you know, uh, anything and everything that I could do as a um, just kind of a grunt work for the detective. That's what I would do. 
You know, that is sounds like just valuable experience. I mean, if nothing else, uh, that would yeah. give you an overview of what's going on and also an idea if this is what I want to do or not. You know? Absolutely. So I'm assuming yeah. it kindled the fire even more in you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the... <laughs> I, I got to work with detectives, you know, for 35, wow. up to 30, up to 39 hours a week. I, I just got to listen and, and hear stories and, wow. uh, and, you know, I had to read some of these reports that I, cause I would also take the reports to sure. the sergeants and the sergeants yeah. would disseminate them to detectives. It's, wow. it's archaic, you know, to think about how we do things nowadays, but literally I'd have a stack of reports on my desk every week, every, yeah. every morning. And I would just sort them and, take them to burglary, take them to robbery. And, uh, it was such a slow, archaic process, uh, yeah. compared to what we do now. But you know, um, along that line, it, there's something about, uh, the, one of the things that's attractive to law enforcement did to me. And as I talked to other people also is being in the know, I mean, you know, what's going on behind the scenes mm-hmm. that a normal citizen doesn't really see. Um, I can yeah. remember, uh, do you ever watch that film called Serpico? Yes. Yes. Yeah. When I was younger, I did. And Al Pacino. And yes. he's a he's a New York cop, and I can never get the scene in there. And he's talking to his girlfriend, and she said, "What the hell are you want to be policeman for?" And he said, "Well, when I was a little kid, there was a disturbance in the neighborhood, and uh, nobody knew what's going on. What's going on? What's going on?" And he said, "All of a sudden, in." through the door walks these two big blue uniforms and he said they know they know what's going on <laughs> nobody else does <laughs> and i thought you know that kind of sums it up in a lot of ways you know you're kind of in the know and got the inside baseball story on community what's going on so anyway you get hired and i'm assuming you pay your dues in patrol as a police officer mm-hmm. yeah i uh-huh. spent seven years uh i spent seven years in patrol working the, the west side of Mesa Central, mostly in the Dobson Fiesta District, and and then a couple of years in Central. Wow. What chief did you hire in under? Uh, uh, it was it had to have been Jan Strauss. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yep. Jan Strauss. Um, yep. She she uh, ran our academy graduation. Okay. So seven years in patrol. And then did you promote right to sergeant or did you have other assignments or how'd you do that? No. So, um, I, I loved working patrol. Like it, uh, it was a blast. I mean, I, at that age, if I could have worked seven days a week, uh, I would have worked seven days, but like, I, I absolutely loved the career. Um, and then I was selected to go to a high enforcement unit. Um, you know, uh, after, uh, you know, Chief Gascon was fairly new and just decentralized everything and created some different units. And um, the the unit that I went to was called the Brave Unit. It was a high enforcement unit where we, the acronym Brave was, uh, we targeted, uh, we took over. We were like overnight sensation. You become, front, you go from patrol and all of a sudden the next day you're a detective, really with no, with no training. Um, it was just like literally one day they're like, oh, you're a detective now. Um, but we worked uh, burglaries, robberies, aggravated assaults, and part of what we did was victim education. So uh, crime was at an all-time high in Mesa, and it was it was unreal. Uh, 
we are just uh, overtime is pretty well unlimited. And uh, I think within the first 30 days, we made over 180 arrests. Um, just just working a, a specific area around, you know, Country Club and Broadway to Country Club and Southern area. Uh, it was a pretty violent time, um, but it was it was an amazing exposure. I, I also got to learn a lot from um, the violent crime detectives, the, the shirt and tie detectives, CIU guys. Um, I learned a ton from that, and it just it was extreme for the uh, probably pound for pound. It was probably the most exciting time in my career as a mm. as a police officer. Wow. wow. So how long were you, when did, how many years did you have on when you made sergeant? I promoted when I had 14 years on. Okay. So you, yeah, you were well qualified by then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm really, I'm really happy that I waited as long as I did. Cause I, as much as I enjoyed doing investigations and you know, the real cop work, uh, it was, it was difficult to give that up when you promote, you can't, there's only so much you can do as a sergeant. Um, and in-depth investigations is just, you just can't do it. Um, so I'm really happy that I waited as long as I did. I don't think I would change anything. You know, I hear that over and over again, the guys that, uh, and, uh, of course there's guys that their, their, uh, niche is supervision and organization and all that. And they promote pretty quick. And there's other guys, they're having so much fun. They don't even study for the sergeants exam or anything because. <laughs> Who wants that? You know, who wants to be stuck in the office half the time? And yeah, so now I can see that. I can relate to that for sure. Well, tell me, what are some of the, can you think of a call that was maybe stands out that was, oh, maybe very challenging, exciting, dangerous, or something you would like to share that kind of sticks in your mind? You know, um, a couple of them. One, one in particular, out of all the, you know, I've, I, I was very blessed to have an exciting career so far and, and continues to this day. And I've, I've, uh, it's been, it's just been really amazing for the most part, more ups than downs. Um, but when I, I think I was around 2004, 2005, um, I responded to a drowning, a, tr- a child drowning call, um, which, uh, unfortunately I had, I had been to, uh, several of them in my career. Um, but that was one of the the first ones, I think. Um, and it was, a I think it was a one-year-old. Um, she was about one years old and, uh, she drowned. Um, and I remember talking to dispatch cause I was in the area of, it had to have been around like Longmore and eighth Avenue and the drowning kicked out in the Dobson ranch area. So, you know, it's, a, that's a significant distance for me to be the closest unit. Um, and it was busy and I, and I was the closest unit and I, you know, I'm going as fast as my natural gas car could let me go. And I remember talking to dispatch and I'm like, Hey, let me know when the fire department goes on scene so I can, you know, shut down running code three. And, um, I think I get to maybe like Dobson and baseline. And, uh, I remember the dispatcher telling me that the fire department was, I don't know. They, they were behind me. They were, they weren't like, they were not close. Um, and so I get there and <laughs> my sergeant at the time who is now the chief of police in Gilbert, uh, Mike Solberg, um, we get there pretty much at the same time. And I think I kicked down the, the side gate. It was just a wooden fence, um, to get to the backyard. Cause there's junk everywhere. And, um, you know, and, uh, 
and Mike Solberg, who's my sergeant at the time, is is right there behind me, and we and we uh, get into doing CPR on this one year old who was purple. She was she was dead, mm. um, oh, oh. and you know we worked her for a solid maybe two minutes, which is an eternity. And the fire department got there, and you know they took over and uh, ultimately took her to Cardin's Children's Hospital, and um, uh, we found out later that she was breathing and she was alive. And, um, uh, a couple days later, it was, it was in December, it was late December. And, um, a couple days later, um, so Mike Solberg and I go to the hospital to, it was on Christmas Eve or Christmas day. And, um, to take her, you know, a couple gifts and whatnot to check up on the baby and found out, uh, it had to be Christmas Eve or Christmas day that, um, that she was released the day before she made a full recovery and was, oh, wow. um, so that, you know, it's still emotional to think about. And, um, at the time it really wasn't cause I was a young kid and, um, you know, as you get older, you get softer and, and you care, yeah. you know, it just seems like <laughs> things, things affect you a lot more than, than they did back then. But yeah. that was probably, you know, one of the most positive, scary, memorable times, Um, in my career and um other than that you know i've i mean i've i've just participated in some really crazy fun exciting uh cases um you know i don't know if you if you have time for another one but it's more of a a funny story um but when i was uh when i was a rookie um we were (laughs) you know we had to do ride-alongs with different units and at the time it was the community action team that we had to do a a day ride-along with and um at Macy's at Fiesta mall, they used to have problems with, uh, adult males going into the bathrooms on the third floor and, and either hooking up, having sex or, uh, hooking up with underage males. So, you know, in uh, in the great forethought of everything, um, the chain of command thought it was a great idea to send, you know, me and uh, one of the other or two of the other guys that were in my Academy class, we had just graduated the academy where we were in field training and they're like, Hey, let's, let's have these youngsters, uh, with no undercover experience and no, barely any training, uh, go in by themselves and try and identify guys that are, you know, doing sexual, uh, stuff in the bathrooms. And, you know, I was, I was barely 21. So I looked like I was 12. And, um, so naturally this, uh, uh, I see this guy kind of just making a beeline Um, and I'm like, oh, he looks like he's, he's got a purpose. So, um, I was all dressed up like I was going to the club and, um, you know, I, I follow him in the bathroom and, uh, they, they gave us like a briefing of how to communicate, you know, they'll tap their, their foot on the floor. They'll tap the, uh, um, the toilet paper dispenser and make eye contact with each other through the reflection on the back wall. And, um, and so it was very interesting. And so, uh, you know, I, it was, it was winter time. So I had a jacket and, uh, I had my gun on of course, my badge and, um, my radio was in my jacket, uh, pocket. And so, um, but they didn't want it to make any noise. So it was a great idea to turn my radio off. Um, you know, looking back, it was probably one of the, the worst things that we could throw a, uh, a, a brand new police <laughs> officer into, you know, my, my oh, cover no. team was, my cover team was too, uh, uh, cat officers that were in the loss prevention office 
just watching on camera. And, and of course, they can't see in the bathroom. So sure, um, sure, yeah, dude. <laughs> it was uh, it was just yeah, it was really it was really smart. Um, and then so one of my uh, one of the other officers from my academy class that was a rookie too, and uh, we were basically paired up. Well, he comes in and he leaves, but I thought he was still in the bathroom. Um, so I start, you know, this guy's like, you know, trying to eyeball me through the, uh, through the stall. And so we start chit chatting and, um, somebody else comes in and it kind of scares him. So he goes back into his, I'm just sitting in a stall, just sitting on the toilet. You know, my, I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting there trying to communicate with this guy. And, um, somebody comes in and so it scares him. He sits in the stall next to me and, um, he actually leans over and like looks underneath the stall and into where I'm at. Oh my gosh. Um, and my heart, my heart is racing and it's like, this is amazing. And, uh, so who I thought was my backup ends up leaving. And, um, so I step out of the stall and wash my hands and I turn around to communicate with the guy and he's standing there and his pants are down. He's got, you know, he's holding his, his privates and he's, uh, pleasuring himself while he's sit standing there, you know, with the stall door open, looking at me and, um, you know, and it was like, everything went calm and I just lifted, uh, where my, uh, I had my shirt covering my badge. I pulled my shirt up a little bit and said, Mesa police, you're under arrest. Uh, put your hands behind your back. And, um, for a second, I thought this guy was going to just, I thought I was going to be in a knockdown drag out fight with a naked guy with a heart on and, and he, he just starts crying just breaks down, starts crying, pulls his pants up and, uh, I handcuff him by myself and, um, <laughs> get him. Wow. Pull my radio out of my, uh, yeah, pull my radio out, turn it on. And, uh, the radios back then didn't work that well. So, uh, nobody could even hear me. It was just like static on the radio. Uh, Amazing. and so I get him in custody and walk out and I'm walking him through. And it, it was like a, it was like all the, you know, the people in the, you know, the girls upstairs and the, the perfume section and whatnot, they're like, Oh my God, what's going on? And I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm on cloud nine walking this pervert, uh, back to the loss prevention office and nobody's answering on the radio. And, um, so I walk into the loss prevention office and there's nobody there. Like it's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, where the, where the hell is everybody? And, uh, a few minutes later, like they all come back, some shoplifter ran from, uh, loss prevention. So they chase this, like my whole, the, everybody I was with chases this, this shoplifter out of the mall and, Lefty by and they're like, Oh, Hey, oh, yeah. yeah. Left me by myself. It was just, uh, you know, and nowadays, uh, you know, with what my team does and, and the undercover experience that I have, it's just, uh, that would absolutely not happen. Um, these days with, with how we run operations. No, so, no. But, you uh, know, yeah, that, that was, that was amazing. That, that could be, uh, tense moment i don't care if you've got 20 years on i mean that, that that's that, that kind of stuff just oh my gosh Jeez. well you know <laughs> yeah. what sounds like it's a valuable experience if for nothing else than to make sure backup and everything is in place for you guys yes. yeah wow. great learning experience and yeah. yeah now i understand that you nate are pretty good with a beanbag gun tell me about that <laughs> Um, you know, back in the, when I got started, um, the beanbag program was only a few years old. Um, and, uh, and it was exciting. It was a good, less lethal tool. And, um, okay, just, I, just for, got, just for, just for our audience, could you tell us exactly 
how a beanbag gun functions? Sure. So there, the original beanbags, it, uh, it was a regular 12-gauge shotgun. Um, nothing special about the shotgun. And the, the beanbag rounds were just put into the, shot, the 12-gauge shell. Um, well, you know, when they first started, they, they were literally just like the beanbags you had when you were in school or now the bigger ones that you play uh, bags with, you know, uh, cornhole. Um, so there are a lot like that. And then, but, um, as they progressed, because <laughs> some of the original ones, they'd come out like a Chinese star and, uh, and really cut people up and, and, and really, you know, <laughs> do some severe damage to the suspect. Um, so things evolved and now it's just like a little, it's a one, a one ounce, uh, almost birdshot lead sack, um, cloth sack. And it just, it's basically, it's an impact weapon. It, it hits you about, um, about you know, maybe a fast pitch baseball would hit you. Oh, um, I see. So it's, okay. it's, uh, it's got some good kinetic energy and psychologically, uh, it sounds like a gun going off and, uh, and it hurts, you know, you get hit. So uh, psychologically it really, um, some, a lot of times makes the suspects think that they got shot and psychologically it breaks them down and it hurts. Um, so, uh, I got certified in that and I, I want to say I was certified for a couple of weeks, maybe two weeks. And I had my first deployment on someone threatening suicide and ended up uh, hitting her with the beanbag three times. And um, as she's standing there threatening to kill herself with a knife and um, she went down, it was extreme. It was immediately effective. And it was, uh, it was like, wow, that was, that was intense. And, you know, 20, 22, 23 year old kid, I must've been 22. And, um, you know, the adrenaline, the excitement, um, you know, and, and ultimately saving, you know, them from sure. seriously hurting themselves. Sure. Uh, yeah. It was, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. And then as the years went on, I mean, I had uh, numerous other beanbag deployments um, and some, some wild circumstances, officer involved shooting um, that I ended up beanbagging the guy right before uh, he charged an officer and officer ended up shooting him and with a, with a handgun. Um, but yeah, definitely some uh, some wild and crazy, uh, scary times. Um, well, yeah. You know, now, I, I'm assuming the guy with the beanbag, he's got other guys covering him that are shooting real bullets. <laughs> Things go sideways. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we we train, you know, we train to deploy with our beanbag uh, with or any less lethal option with a lethal coverage. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so now they train yeah, you to just, not to shoot him in the head, I'm assuming. Correct. Yeah. Unless it's a, you know, unless it's a situation where if you had your regular gun in your hand, you would, uh, uh, it was a deadly force. Um, you know, but you're there with any less lethal, the taser, the beanbag, we have 40 millimeter, um, you know, sh almost like the foam bullets, uh, rubber, the big rubber bullets, yeah, um, yeah. stuff that'll shoot like tear gas. Um, any of those you, you know, are we train that you have to have somebody that's less lethal or that is a lethal coverage protection sure, for you sure. as a less lethal deployer. Yeah. Now this, these beanbags they shoot, um, obviously they don't, uh, uh, make entry into the guy's body. Just how, what does that spread out? It's about the size of a silver dollar or something when it hits or how's that work? Yeah, it, it's, they're, they're not supposed to, but sometimes, you know, drug addicts with, they're not world-class athletes, so they don't have the, you know, the strongest skin, they don't take care of themselves. And sometimes uh, uh, the beanbags, they do uh, enter the body. Uh, yeah, they do. We recently, um, 
uh, one stuck in a guy's leg. Um, and, uh, a couple of months ago and, you know, it's like, wow, you know, and then the other, the other beanbag rounds that hit him, like just left a, it's like a strawberry when you fall in the, in the street. I mean, that's, sure. uh, that's for the most part what it looks like. Um, and he had, he got hit several times with a beanbag, not by me, but by one of my detectives. And, um, one literally goes in and deflects off his femur bone and the others just like give him strawberry abrasions. Mm, well, uh, so it's, I, I guess the yeah, alternative, you never know. Get, the alternative for him is, uh, getting shot with a real bullet. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. They're, oh it, it's such, <laughs> it's such an amazing tool and it really is an effective tool for the most part. Nothing is a hundred percent. No, uh, but it's a, it is a really good tool. About the time we find, we think we find the silver bullet, we run into all kinds of uh, situations. Yeah. So now tell me, yeah. Nate, okay, you've been on 20 years now. You're sergeant out there. Uh, sounds like you've got a pretty good squad there. Now you were also involved in the uh, Mesa Police Association. Is that what the proper name is, the MPA? The Guild? Yeah. Yep. Mesa Police Association. So you represent the police officers in, is it salary negotiations or how does all that work? Uh, it was everything um, from, you know, uh, the first day sworn police officers to the chief of police. If they were a member, um, we would represent them in uh, disciplinary cases, negotiations with the city for any benefits, pay, um, you know, working conditions. Um, the majority of what, uh, what we did was disciplinary stuff for some, you know, very minor from missing court to officers that do things that end their career and they go to prison, uh, or jail. Um, so it is a, it, it really ranged from everything. And I, I spent, um, about 16 years doing that. So, you know, the vast majority of my career being, uh, participating in the, the union and being a board member um, a few times. And then also being the president for the last four years of, of my career with this, with like being very hands-on with the union, I'm still a representative. Um, so if somebody has a disciplinary issue, I, and it's probably a couple times a week, I get, I still get calls, um, you know, for advice and, and whatnot, uh, or just, you know, or just, Hey, where is this at the office type thing from the, the newer board members? Sure. Um, but yeah, I, uh, um, definitely spent a lot. That was a huge part of my life. Um, lots of ups and downs with it. I, I don't know if the, the good outweighed the bad or vice versa. Um, but it was, uh, it was definitely, um, it was a lot that I learned from and it really helped, you know, with my character and my leadership abilities. And, um, I'm fortunate to have been exposed to, to what I did. And at the same time, um, you know, a couple of things that, uh, that really, really did took more out of me than anything in my career. I would imagine. And, you know, there's a fine line there. Um, I think from what I've observed, sometimes, uh, you know, you got to give the guy his, uh, take care of the officer's rights when he's disciplined or something as much as, uh, anybody else's people forget that. And you see abuses on both sides, I think. I mean, you see, especially some of these chiefs here, my God, they fire somebody for they because they saw a little piece of a clip of a video and they fire them. They don't even got the whole story yet, you know? And right. Then, then there's other guys. Even, oh, yeah, go ahead, Nate. 
yeah, even when they have the whole story, it just, it looks ugly. Force looks terrible, um, no matter how it is, whether it's 100% righteous or questionable, it looks bad. And, um, and I've seen, um, you know, some of the, some of the worst leaders um, I've seen in my career. And then I've also seen some of the best, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and we're, uh, you know, it's uh, when sometimes the, the thought of a police union or any union is, oh, we're there to get our officers out of trouble. And that's completely inaccurate. Um, you know, we're there to, you know, we'll, we'll fight to the end to make sure that our members are treated fairly and equally. And that's it. Like that's, that's what they pay their membership dues. We're not there to find a loophole to get them out of trouble. Um, most of the time when there's, when there is a disciplinary response to it and it's, um, you know, we're, we're in agreement. Hey, yeah, this person needs to be disciplined, but you must follow the city must follow the law. The department must follow the law. And that's what, you know, we'll die in the line defending that. Um, we're not defending, um, we're not, working to get the officer out of trouble or the, the member out of trouble. It's just, they must be treated fairly and equally. And if the rules are violated by the department in the city, which has happened a countless amount of times, um, you know, we're the ones that are screaming and pounding our fists on the table. So well, you know, that, that's I'm, the role. I'm glad you said that, Nate, because a lot of people have the impression that, well, you're just going to fight for the guy, no matter if he's guilty or no matter what he did, you're going to, just stand up and say you didn't do anything. Well, and I, yeah. so I'm glad, I'm glad you expanded on that, that it's not so much that, okay, if the guy screwed up, man, he screwed up and he's, he's got to pay the consequences, but Hey, let's, the consequences have to match the, uh, what the procedures call for. I mean, uh, yeah. a, lot, a lot of times you see some abuses and golly, I mean, and I think, you know, it's too bad the public doesn't know a little bit more about that. But the simple fact that, okay, you can run a 10-second clip on the news at night and it just looks like, oh, my gosh, what's the matter with that guy? Well, you weren't there, honey. You didn't see the other five minutes on either side of that little clip. And, you you know, (laughs) you don't know the whole story. And you guys then come in and, you know, you see the whole story from start to end. And it makes a big difference when you really find out the facts. But a lot of these guys get hung out to dry. So I'm glad the MPA is there to help the Mesa cops. I know just about every department has some kind of organization like that. And that's a good thing, you know? Yeah, like and, say and we've been very, we've been very successful. Um, and we have, even though like we've really butted heads with the city over the, the you know, the my last 20 years and the 16 years I was involved, um, we have a really good relationship with the city. It's pro- it's the best that it's ever been. Um, and it's built on, you know, communication relationship and, um, you know, with city manager's office where we have been in myself, uh, have been in like real, like yelling matches, uh, over, uh, disagreements. And it wasn't, it was never personal. It was, uh, and I reflect on that a lot where one of the assistants, one of the one of the uh, assistant city managers and I have such a had such a great relationship that we would get in heated arguments and then it was like all right well let's go get some lunch and and that was it like we just moved on to the next thing um, and uh, yeah so it was really it was really good um, so uh, you know like I said the the biggest thing is just making sure people are treated fairly I've personally walked out people uh, that were fired um, I. 
uh, probably four or five people that I've personally escorted out of the building. Um, some of them uh, absolutely deserve to be terminated and they lost their certification and a, and a couple of them absolutely should not have been. Um, and that was corrected later on down the road and, you know, through the legal process and they were able to, you know, either be reinstated or reinstated and, and retire. Um, so the, those are the, the positive sides, the wins. Um, but it was, uh, it was definitely a, a huge part of my life in the police department that I'm, you know, fortunate and unfortunate to sure, have sure. participated in. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know what? Uh, and it's, I, that, I can't imagine um, how reassuring it is for the officers on the street, especially nowadays, to know that, hey, someone's got my back and they're just not going to let them roll over on me here. So, yep, that's good. Well, Nate, listen, we've been talking a while, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's flown by. It's been, it's been very cool talking to you, Bill. Well, let me ask you now, what are, do you have any visions for your career? Are you going to hang around till you're 90 or what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, I would like to do um, another 12 years, which will put me at, you know, my 32 years as a police officer and I'll still be barely 52. Um, you know, I, I, I have interest in promoting, um, but I mean, our kind of how our det- uh, lieutenant level is, working right now just the resources that they don't have available to them it it's making it very hard for me to want to do that um it's just uh, the numbers and i in our in our uh, personnel numbers are growing um this current uh chief's office and chief cost are doing a really good job uh of building us up over the next few years um but the lieutenant side just really needs some focus and um you know the the lieutenants the patrol lieutenants specifically are really restricted they there's a lot of times only one or two lieutenants working in the city. And so they, they can't mentor, they can't participate in, uh, in some of these more important calls and these have to literally be available for the next emergency call to come out. So, um, that just, it kind of, it's against, it kind of goes against my drive and my, my work ethic to just be, just sit there and waiting for sure, something sure. worse to yeah. happen. And I can't really, you want to be a little more proactive yeah well yeah and you know i think it'll get there it's just it's gonna take some time you know things go in cycles you know about every five years things will get hot and then they'll cool down and so you just gotta i think uh the ones the guys really are glad they hung around (laughs) sometimes and some guys get frustrated (laughs) and frustrated and bail out and then uh, the next year, whatever, whatever problems they had were having is all gone, and there's a whole new gig going yep. on. So, well, yep. listen, Nate, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing. And this is one of these things where uh, I always try to get guys like you who've been around and have so much experience that somewhere down the road, maybe you'll commit to a part two and come back on as a guest with a podcast. Would that? Would you be open to that at some point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh this has been fun. Like I haven't been able to participate in something like this since I left the union business. So, uh, yeah, well, you know, um, you never know, uh, when you're out there camping, look for a mountain bike flying down the service road. (laughs) I will, I will, I will be there in August. So, uh, we'll be looking for it. Okay. Well, I think last time you gave me a beer, I think, and I appreciated that. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I always have that with me when, you know, <laughs> not when I'm working, but when I'm camping. 
<laughs> okay, Nate, listen, if you hang on the line for a minute, thanks you for being our guest on the Boys in Blue podcast yeah. today. Thank you, Bill. You bet. So that wraps us up for today's episode. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you down the road. This is uh, retired officer Bill McReynolds. Thank you for listening in to the Boys in Blue podcast. Thank you for listening to the Boys in Blue podcast. Again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Boys in Blue comes out every other week. Subscribe to the Boys in Blue wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you think. 